with my Mac. Um, anyway, yeah, so this is uh, something I did uh, way back when, when I was a kid. Um, later on, I went through five years of art school in a four-year program. Uh, and uh, then I decided I was going to apply to Marvel and its backup plan uh, to DC. Uh, and they don't do this, they don't accept uh, samples from strangers anymore. But back when they did, this is the letter they sent back, which is a form letter of all the problems you can have. And you can see that all of them are checked off, or at least under, or underlined if they really emphasized it instead. Except for storytelling, which frankly was even a problem then. Um, and then I l sat on my couch for as much as I could for three days until I got my letter from DC saying, yeah, we don't think you're, they didn't actually literally say this, but they said pretty much, we don't think you're good enough either but we'd like to see more stuff. And that got me off the couch. And eventually I did get work with DC. And after DC had trained me up, Marvel then contacted me by phone from their um, X-Men group editor and said, hey, we'd like some work from you too. Uh, for all I, this is uh, pre-caller ID, so I was like, this could be a friend of mine playing a trick on me. <laughs> or this could be the real guy. So I'll act like he's the real guy, and it was. So um, yeah, eventually I made it in. Um, this is what a comic book script looks like. This is something by Bill Willingham for Fables. Uh, and this is what I work with. Uh, it works pretty much like a screenplay or a stage play script, uh, but it goes panel by panel. Each little box is where I draw an image, uh, and then describes the action, and then the, uh, and then the dialogue. So essentially, it breaks things down into what the artist needs, and then what the letterer needs in case it's a separate team doing that. And my lettering is not good by professional standards, so I always use the letterer. Uh, in this case, I worked with uh, an old artist pal of mine who did layouts for me to speed things up. Uh, but this is the next stage of figuring out, translating that script into ideas, which is, in my mind, um, the most fun part of the whole story, or the whole process. Uh, but he's also, my friend is smarter and faster than me, so I let him do that because we were on a tight deadline. Uh, and you'll notice that I didn't keep the drawing layouts the same, but I did keep the lettering layouts the same, which I found really useful. So here's my pencils on top of that. That's my inks on top of the pencils. Uh, in this case, I don't literally use inks for the inks. Uh, this is done with um, dark pencil, 2B, uh, drawn very cleanly, I don't smear. And then a marker, I use Copic brush markers. Uh, and I didn't do the coloring this time, but that's the colors on top of that. Uh, here's a page where I did all the layouts myself. This is uh, from a script from Alan Moore for a book called uh, Top 10, the 49ers. And you can see how this then translates into, oh, and this is also an example of how I use photo reference. Um, does anybody here ever have trouble drawing something like an unusual uh, hand pose? Uh, okay, and you, most of you guys are friends, at least with somebody else inside your classes? As long as you have a cell phone with you, with a camera, um, you can always get reference. And you just need to find a friend who barely vaguely looks like the character in some sense, or at least doesn't obviously not look like that character, and then just ask them to pose really quick. As long as you have that, you have reference on how to draw any human pose in the world they can do. Uh, oh, and really, really quick trick. Um, if you ever need to do a flying pose, which, I mean, I think only two of you were interested in doing superhero books, so most of you are probably not going to be doing the flying poses. But um, yeah, if you need to do that, just have them go like this and then stand on a chair above them. Okay, but anyway, these are two of my friends. That's the guy who does, does layouts for me, uh, Xander Cannon, and then the wife of a different friend, playing two of the characters, and they translate it into this. Um, 
Now let me see. How many people here do a very, very highly rendered style with lots of little fine lines? Okay. I'll say as you get older and older, and especially if you work in comics, uh, this is a recipe for carpal tunnel syndrome. It's, it, uh, when you do 22 pages a month, uh, sometimes on a tight deadline, somebody else is late, so then you have less than a month. And then you're just staying up 12 hours a day, uh, drawing, 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 those fine lines. I couldn't keep this up. It, my wrist was sore by the end of the day. I could tell I was going to end up with nerve damage someday. Uh, I did keep on drawing, and my eyes were ruined by it, but at least my hand wasn't. So I switched to a simpler style, but this is kind of style I used to work in. Um, this page here is another one of the detailed ones before I kind of quit most of that stuff. Um, what happened here is the writer was sick, and he had to start a new script, so he wrote two pages, and on the second page it said, down view of the city. And it's a giant city, because uh, we already established in previous issues. So um, it took me four days working nonstop to finish this single page. And by that time, he was fine. So he could finish up the rest of the script. So he did that to slow me down. Which is, it was a good story, so I, did, I wasn't angry about it. If it was a horrible s story, I w which has happened later, where somebody threw an unnecessary detailed page, and it's like, this isn't part of the story. You just wanted to make me draw something incredibly detailed for two weeks. Yeah, then I was furious. But this was a good story, so it was worth it. Uh, let me see. I also do a lot of my own. Oh, like I mentioned, I do some of my own coloring. This is an example of that. Uh, let me see. Oh, also, I like kind of hiding my signature a little bit, where I assume that my style is distinctive enough so I don't need to make my signature obvious. So if you look carefully, you can see that. Uh, this is a cover for a uh, Green Lantern uh, spin-off special for a character called, um, all of a sudden my, my mind is completely blanking out on what the name of the orange guy is. Uh, he's the greediest orange lantern. He's the only orange lantern. Um, Different Gene Ha cover. Let me see. Oh, this is a fun one. Um, the process you usually go through for most commercial art is you send in a sketch, uh, you know, to show your, uh, what you're planning on doing before you do the finished work so that everyone can approve it. So this one had a sketch where I did all this stuff, and uh, then I followed the layout and did this. And then after I got to the stage, uh, one of the assistant editors noticed Oh, wait a minute. There's two characters with similar costumes. One has giant powers. The other one's a midget. You drew the midget as the giant guy. <laughs> Wrong costume. So then I had to redo that one after, that, after everyone else had not noticed that in the sketch stage. <laughs> yeah, that was a little awkward. So, uh, Let me see. Uh, some more of my own stuff here. Yeah, um, Dr. Horrible, Captain Hammer. Let me see. Oh, uh, for the librarians out there, a uh, poster I did for the, uh, I think it was for the ALA. Hero <laughs> yes. A hero by day, a hero by night. Uh, let me see. A Batman cover I did. And uh, let me see. Oh, also I do occasional uh, small projects for book covers. I will say these guys are amazingly badly financed. One of the nice things about comics work is that uh, it will eat up all of your time. But if you can fit that in with, if you're not interested specifically in co superhero comic books, the one nice thing about it, especially as a writer, is it's a steady paycheck while you do other stuff. So there's so many people out there. Um, I don't know if you've, uh, when you hear something like New York Times bestseller, 
you probably think of somebody like J.K. Rowling or something like that who's living in a mansion, making financial donations to foundations of like a million dollars, saying, yes, I would like people inside of uh, this third world country to get clean water. Um, the average New York Times bestseller uh, lives pretty much and probably has a job almost exactly like the teachers around you. You can be a very, you can be a very successful New York Times top-selling author, and you're not going to make that money, uh, much money off it unless you're one of the mega-selling authors. I am a New York Times best-selling uh, creator, and I'm not that rich. <laughs> but uh, I'm making more money off my books than most New York Times bestsellers do because I work in comics, so I get a steady paycheck from it, where a lot of those guys will only come out with a book, say, every two, three, ten years, and then they get that one payoff then, and then it's like, you know, I go back to my day job. So um, comics is nice for that. Um, oh, also I've done some weird side projects. Uh, Simpsons. Uh, this was done in uh, almost all Copic marker with a little bit of pencil, and then tinted in Photoshop. Oh, no, I, I love Copics because um, the thing with watercolor is that thing where you do the really dark area, and you have to use a lot of paint, and then you have to wait 10 minutes for it to dry, so you have to leave the page or work on a different page. Uh, and Copics dry almost instantly. Uh, no, um, most of the top 10 stuff is digitally colored. Yeah, there's a few pages where I did uh, Copic, but it... At the time, uh, the colorist and me didn't quite sync everything up, and the contrast was off a little bit. So I wasn't happy with how that worked out. Uh, and this one, because I was more in control of it, I was able to control contrast better and adjust Photoshop and all that. So I was much happier with how it came out. Oh, and uh, this is my current project where I'm doing something creator-owned, uh, and it's called May. Um, kind of a YA book, but I try to aim it so it's sophisticated enough for my grown-up friends to read. And uh, these are some of the character concepts I did initially when I was coming up with the book. And these are some of the pages. Uh, the initial two issues worth, I colored myself. Uh, this is temp lettering. I, when I say I'm a bad letterer, if you show this to a professional letterer, they'll just cringe. There's so many things I'm doing wrong here. This is bad digital lettering. Yeah. Um, And that's what I do. Now, I can go into detail about how I create a page if you guys are interested in that. Okay, so you're interested at least. Okay, so I'm going to show that next. Uh, this will involve opening up another folder of, of images, so that may cause a little bit of a weirdness. Let's see. Let's hope this one works better. Okay, let's check settings. Okay, so pause. That's what I need. Okay. Uh, now, because uh, I'm a, uh, an artist writer writing for myself, I don't like writing in script form because I think visually. So this is how the script starts off for me, which is just a giant page of layouts of pretty much a whole issue's worth. There's another page with the rest of the issue. And uh, I just have small notes in dialogue, the action, stuff like that, and just making sure all the story beats work right. Uh, because you guys are mostly uh, artists, I'm assuming that's, if you do a comic book someday, that's how you'll work. Oh, and also, um, you guys know of also about later today, they have uh, the Threadbare journalist coming in, Elizabeth Ann Moore. Yeah, if you're not interested in superhero books, she shows a lot of stuff that, that her, the artist she worked with do outside of that. So that way you never have to do the standing on top of a chair to get your friend doing the flying pose. 
But um, this is how I break it down. It's not a bad way for an artist to work. And just making sure the visual storytelling works. Uh, from there, uh, I then uh, scan that into computer. Oh, also, wait a minute. How many of you guys have drawn digitally? Just uh, started and finished a drawing? OK. The sooner you guys can start doing that, the better, especially if you're going to be working on uh, comics. Because otherwise, you're going to be doing what I'm doing, which is you'll see this in the slides. I'll do a tiny little drawing, scan it into computer, uh, adjust it, fix it up, and then blow it up larger, turn it into a blue line, print it on paper, then do another drawing on top of that. Then I get all the kinks worked out on that, scan it, blue line it, do it larger, and then do the finished piece finally, at least the finished black and white. And this wastes a lot of time. For the people who can just go pure digitally, um, yeah, you are saving so much hassle, and especially little hassles of like things didn't line up right. Uh, the print, the I do not like my scanner. We are not friends. <laughs> it has firmly established that it is a cat. It, it has the personality of a cat, and it will go where it wants. Anyway, but I go through that hassle. If you can avoid the, these stages, do it. Do it, please. It will make your life so much happier. Okay, here's that single page that I'm going to focus on. And from there, uh, I then uh, did, so I can work out uh, just all the storytelling except for the color. Uh, this is all digital. But then I did this uh, in grayscale so I could work out the lighting and stuff like that. And the, the most important thing in coloring isn't accurately representing the color of an apple as red or um, you know, a dog as black and white or something like that. It's drawing the eye. It's part of the composition, so that's why I have to figure that out. And the light-dark contrast is the most important part of that. So making sure that works right. Uh, I then converted that into a blue line and printed this. Pencils on top of that. Scan that in. Blue line that. Now, the original, you saw, um, I have the back here, but the original thumbnail sketch was about this big. The pencil sketch was on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. Acid-free, so I don't regret it 20 years from now. Uh, but just inkjet paper, really nice inkjet paper. Uh, I then printed this on 11 by 17 uh, animation paper, which is a lot like inkjet paper, also archival acid-free. And then drew this. Scan that again, so there's three stages of scanning for me, which is really annoying. Um, added the lettering digitally after scanning it. And then I colored it myself. Um, another thing also is if you're going to work on a a monthly book for one of the big companies, you will be working with a lot of other people and you want to work well with them and work with a style that they can understand. So always keep that in mind. Uh, I will say the colorists have gotten a lot better since I first started in the industry. This, these are the different stages of the coloring. Um, we have a, a job inside of comics called flatting where somebody just does flat areas of color for you to select with your magic wand. So that way you don't have to do that, which takes about as long for me as the rest of the coloring process almost, and is incredibly mind-numbing, which leaves me no creative energy afterwards. So it really is worth it for me to just pay 5 10 even $20 to have somebody else flat it. And if you're not too fussy, or if you have friends in college who are looking for quick work, uh, and you've got to get it, meet a deadline, please hire the flatter Everyone, will, if you're going to do your own coloring. Anyway, this is the flat stage. I then adapted the colors closer to where I wanted the final direction to be and began adding things in different layers. You'll see there's a little bit of a texture there. And that's just a, I actually scanned in a piece of paper with a nice texture I liked. 
kind of a medium kind of uh, rice paper type of thing. Um, and then just tinted it and put that in as an overlay layer. And I even have like a copy of the original full file if you want to see how I work. But I just, uh, I usually work from kind of a medium dark and then fill in the lights and then the darks in different layers. I keep the layers, um, the lights and the darks on separate layers because if I make a, want to make a color adjustment later, if you try adjusting a, an air, one single area with two colors in it, you will find that one color is not adjusting in the same direction as the other and it looks horrible and you have to repaint the whole thing. Uh, comparing it now to the uh, original file to make sure that it's all making sense. And I'm just building things up. I usually use like about two or three dark layers, two or three lightening layers, and then a few other adjustments here and there. And the final thing I do, um, which just makes everything a lot simpler, um, because there's a big difference in how print comes out and uh, digital files come out, uh, usually you have to lighten up a digital file a lot to make it print properly. So I just go in with, uh, I put, have you guys ever used an adjustment layer? Okay, you can just, uh, all those little uh, adjustment things like brightness, darkness, uh, color, you know, hue, saturation, you can do as a layer you put on top of everything else and then just adjust it and then turn that layer on and off when you want to or only make it apply to certain areas using a mask. And that's what I do here. And that's the finished piece. Is that all in Photoshop? That's all in Photoshop. Um, this computer does not have Photoshop on it, so I can't demonstrate open Photoshop to show that stuff. If you guys wanted to, I could actually just bring out my Mac and later, and uh, I will be at a table out there answering questions and doing sketches. And also, do you guys have any questions about any of this process or anything you want me to go over more specifically? Uh, I am inside of uh, CMYK because uh, DC Comics like to have all their files in CMYK. Uh, they are weird and persnickety. So later I've talked to like React designers saying, oh, that's insane. You want to be in RGB and then it's the job of the printer to get the colors as accurate as possible. And you can get colors you can't get with just a pure CMYK file by letting the printer adjust the file and then print it in CMYK. Uh, but just as a fail-safe thing I'd be doing CMYK so there's no weird things happening. Uh, but say things like uh, green glows like that or, or oranges. Uh, CMYK, uh, oranges look horrible in CMYK. And a really good printer can make an orange glowing object look beautiful or a, you know, an, a piece of citrus look beautiful. Well, if you just try to do it purely in CMYK, it's going to look like, it's going to be kind of brown looking. It's just going to kind of look moldy, dead. Um, yeah. But I'm doing CMYK, which puts some limits on it. Uh, and then to make things like uh, reds look especially vivid, I go a little bit beyond the limits and then just try to put colors around it that'll make it look a little more poppy, make it pop a little more. Yeah, um, let me see what else is there. Oh yeah, there's also another funny thing. Um, when I was in art school, uh, and I went, to a, I, uh, went to art school in Detroit at the Center for Creative Studies, I worked with some of the top people doing automotive commercial art. And one of the things the instructors told me is, if you can, always go as far beyond the margins as you can and give a lot of extra artwork because someday these people are going to want to take that drawing 
or may want to take that drawing and reuse it for something else. Like if you're doing a magazine cover, they might want to use it as a side illustration or put on a subscription card or whatever or a postcard. And having that little bit of extra space lets them format it differently so it's more useful to them. So always do that for commercial art. And then I tried doing this at DC Comics and they were like, you have five extra pixels on the side of this, on this. it doesn't fit in our file. And it's like, well, can't you just center it right? I just gave you extra art. I'd love to give you like five extra, you know, like 300 extra pixels or 1,000 extra pixels. It's like, no, reformat it and send it back. This is not acceptable. And it's the only people in the world I know who are like that, or it's just like, no, we, we, that's not our job. We don't want extra art and we don't care about the marketing department because <laughs> they will reuse that art. But yeah, it's kind of like, no, it's not our job to make their lives easier. So, um, but normally, normally, if you talk to your people you're working for on a commercial job and ask them if you, you know, go beyond the margins and do a larger illustration, uh, if they want that, then they'll be super happy you're offering it for free, and if you want to do it anyway. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Ah, file formats. <laughs> yeah, um, oh, more questions. Please. Uh, that is a hand-drawn lettering. Um, on comic books, I like doing hand-drawn lettering because, uh, let me see if we can go back to a different file. Hold on a second. I think it kind of makes the page look really dead if you use digital lettering. Let me go back to one of the ones where I use that. Oh, no, that's not digital. Okay, hold on a second. There we go. Come on, you can do it. Okay, yeah, and can I, no. Yeah, if you look here, I mean, this is a, a hand-drawn version of digital lettering, but because it's so even and every letter is so identically perfect, it still feels like a piece of um, just block text, because it is, it literally is. Um, and then if you look at something like Xander did, it just feels a little looser, it feels, it is hand-drawn. He draws it digitally, but he hand-writes each letter. So it just feels literally like what it is, which is a note written directly to the reader. Well, this feels like an email. So that's why I use that. Um, depending on what project you do, obviously, you don't want to do a giant wall of text that looks hand-drawn. No matter how nice of a font it is, it's still going to be a little hard to read. It's not going to read as instantly. But for this purpose, I really like hand-drawn, uh, and especially for sound effects. Um, there are professional, very successful comic book lettering companies that have all these digital sound effect fonts, and then they will do like, you know, 40 different uh, Marvel and DC books a month. And I hate, I mean, they're professionals, and some of them win awards, but I still hate it. I just, it looks really dead to me. Because a letter that goes at the beginning of a sound effect should not look like, look like one that goes in the middle. Uh, and it just looks weird to me when you do that, so. So I prefer hand-drawn. That's just totally an opinion. Yeah, to make sure that theoretically at least, uh, the balloon placement and stuff like that can work and there's enough room to make it work. Uh, a big issue in a lot of comic books is um, people don't think about where the word balloons go. You'll also notice that when I do it, I always make sure that the characters appear on the page in the same order that they're talking. I'll flip the camera around if I have to, which is a big rule break from film where there's a, I think it's called the 180 rule or something like that. Do you guys, any film students here or film, film buffs? Something like that. Okay, yeah, if you have two people standing you're like, yak, 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 you're never supposed to go like this, because it's too confusing. 
Um, that's not, as long as you design your characters well in a comic book and um, make things clear what's going on and stuff like that, that's not a problem in comic books. There's a bit, lot of discussion about whether you should follow this rule or not in comics. Um, I don't worry about it as much. I find the most important thing is to make the word balloons read easily. So uh, if she was going to be talking first in this scene, I would have, figure out a way to have her on this side and then her sister on the other side. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's why I do all this type of stuff, just to make sure the lettering works and it feels natural. Um, though the thing is also, my pal Xander, who uh, does the lettering, worked with me on Top Ten and then showed up in that uh, reference photo, uh, is better at lettering and balloon placement than I am. So I then, once I know that theoretically it can, be, it can work, he can then figure out a better way to make it work if he wants to. Yeah, um, yeah and if you are interested in ever getting into com drawing comic books someday, uh, for any part of the market. Um, it is so useful to be the guy or gal who um, has done every stage yourself. And if you ever do want to go for that commercial job of like working for DC or Marvel or first, second books or something like that, um, if they know that you understand every stage of the process and aren't going to screw things up for the next person working on the assembly line, you know, if you're not doing your own lettering or coloring or something like that, that will make them very secure. Or if you understand how to deal with printers and know that you're not going to mess up the, the file so that the printer can't print it, again, this is a huge reassurance to um, an editor. If you want to go for a job based on comic books, printing your own comic book is, what, is the best resume. I mean, you can show them some files of like 10 pages of sequential art, um, and it can be beautiful. But if you show them not quite as good, but like five issues of a comic book, it's like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know you understand how this whole business works, and you're not going to screw up on us. So, yeah, that is a huge reassurance to them. Uh, let me ask, what kind of art are you guys interested in doing? Just anyone pop, ch chime in. You look like you're almost about to say something. Okay. Uh, I will say that a there are a lot of people in comic books uh, who start off in animation. And then um, the, as hard as we comic book artists will complain about how tough the monthly deadlines are, this is nothing compared to animation. This is nothing compared to that. I mean, you, you know, when you're the person doing the interstitials inside of a 2D animation or something like that, or just all the, the really annoying little bits that take, you know, like, and then I worked on 24 seconds of animation for three months, and we finally got it perfect. And then my letter, my name went like this on the screen among 300 other animators, you know. <laughs> the idea of doing a comic book, having your name up front, and having, oh my, I have a month to do 22 pages of art. This is amazing. Um, and, you know, and they, I own the book. They can't fire me. <laughs> you know, a lot of people go from animation to comic books. It's, it may or may not make more money, depending on how successful you are. But the emotional rewards tend to be a lot bigger. Yeah, uh, what kind of art other people are interested in? Uh, I'm going for mechanical engineering. Oh. Uh, yeah, I just enjoy drawing. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah it's a good I'm combination. Not talented or anything, I just enjoy Not true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm assuming you can draw mechanical or 3D models or something like that? Uh, yeah, I've worked in CAD and stuff. Okay. Can you hand draw? Uh, a little bit. Okay. Uh, sometimes that leaks over. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, Watchman Dave Gibbons. Yeah, he's he was pre-digital when he started off, but um, yeah, he started off doing like buildings, uh, doing building surveys and doing drawings of buildings. 
Yeah, and then if you go into like Watchmen, it's like, wow, he really cares about making sure the scale and architectural details of all those buildings are right. It's because that's what he used to do. Yeah, um, anything? Well, I'm the teacher. I'm an, I'm an oil painter, but I okay. uh, was doing a graphic novel for a while, and I was working on it. Okay. Yeah. And I just recently converted to completely digital flow, and it really... Oh, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. When I have things where it's just like not lining up right or oh, the scanner is being really, really fussy, it's like, okay, if I reboot the whole computer and then it'll work. Yeah. It's like. I miss paper, but literally the entire thing is on my iPad right now. It's like a big iPad. The entire workflow can happen on there. It's, it's crazy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes things much happier. <laughs> okay. So what are you interested in doing? Oh, please. Uh, I mostly am interested in the creators I like. So if they jump from company to company, I'm going to follow them. Uh, and, you know, people will get really, really uh, in love with the character because, uh, well, I mean, honestly, they'll get, they'll fall in love with the company, uh, character mainly because, uh, I don't know how many of you guys are like big Marvel or DC uh, fans. Uh, they'll mainly fall in love with the character because they've been pushed to the top uh, the top billing of a crossover event where several different titles, like 30 different titles in a book, all are like fighting against the same villain, or nowadays fighting against each other, almost always fighting against each other. Uh, and it's like, oh, now they've finally given Captain Marvel top billing inside this crossover event. I love Captain Marvel. Oh, they've totally changed her personality into a villain now, and she's only doing evil things. Um, so that doesn't attract me. Uh, let me see. Yeah, and uh, Iron Man a few, t a few times. Uh, let me see. Yeah, uh, the leader of the Fantastic Four, Reed Richards, at one point became a sadistic torturing guy. It was like, no, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so that, the crossover events don't attract me. That's, and that's something that drives me crazy about the companies. Um, I do follow the creative talent sometimes. And if the right, uh, writer or artist is going into a book, it's like, yes, I am going to read that book when I have time. Uh, also, working on monthly comic books cuts into your time to read comic books oftentimes. Uh, but yeah, I, I follow creators. And then uh, I especially love it when they do their own creative work. Um, a f say 10 years ago, uh, the comic book market was completely dominated by Marvel and DC. And now the big thing right now, it's not the dominating the market, but the most important thing right now is Image Comics and a few of the other smaller publishers who are allowing all of the top writers at Marvel and DC who have gotten sick of writing crossover events <laughs> to do their own personal books. Um, and this is opening up the market for more and more creative work like that. Um, also, this is also the age where uh, finally the people doing uh, online comics, web comics, are finally getting mainstream print success. So uh, I don't know if like uh, Noel Stevenson's Nimona, um, uh, Kate Beaton, um, I think even like uh, Raina Telgemeier uh, all started off doing digital comics. And they have become, they don't get as much um, uh, press from the comic book geek press and online, you know, critics and stuff like that. But as far as sales goes, they're they are like five times bigger than any superhero writer or artist. They are much more important. Because of their online audience. No, uh, things like just kids. But kids don't go online and then talk about their favorite comic book as much as forty-year-olds do. Mm -hmm. Which it's true. So uh, yeah, they don't get as much online buzz. 
<laughs> but as far as actual excitement goes and sales goes, yeah, they're bigger. They're huge. Yeah, uh, so that's how I, that's how I kind of look at the market now. Um, and the thing is also, um, the version of the characters I like from Marvel and DC from when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, uh, aren't really the same characters anymore. Again, Reed Richard, Torturer, uh, yeah. So you, so you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So you don't like the changes that Marvel has done to? I don't mind the changes, it's just that they're not the same characters. I mean, actually I'm happy that the characters keep on changing because if they were exactly the same ones, it'd be a little scary of kind of like, okay, I may be enjoying the fact that this is exactly the same guy I knew 20, 30 years ago, but I have no idea why a kid would be interested in reading this character. Or a 20-year-old, or you know, why a 40-year-old would continuously read the same book for that whole period. Yeah, on the other hand, there's like Hellboy, something like that, or one of these other books which has been around forever, by your standards. Um, uh, not by mine, but yeah. Uh, one guy kind of masterminding the whole uh, storyline, all the crossover tie-in books and stuff like that. And it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. And it's the same character all along, but he goes through the changes in a way that makes sense because there's one guy who's saying, and then Hellboy, uh, Hellboy came to Earth, and then he grew up, and then he went to Hell. But he's a demon, so he's still alive. He's not dead and trapped in Hell. He's just a normal resident of Hell. <laughs> so, you know, he, he makes it all make sense. Go ahead. Oh, yes. Yeah, it, uh, this computer, the, um, the library computer does not have Photoshop on it. And my Mac does not play nice with the screen. But afterwards, if you want, I'll be at my, t uh, the, I think they have a table for me out there. I'll have my computer. I can show anyone anything they want. In fact, I'll even give you a copy of the file if you have something to copy it onto. So, uh, okay. Oh, um, any specific questions you had about the, how the layering works and stuff like that? Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, actually, okay. Um, do you guys use a lot of Photoshop or do you do oil painting? Okay. Uh, I'm the way I personally think of Photoshop is um, when I graduated from college, it was a year before my art school began seriously getting into teaching digital um, art. So then I, like 10 years later, then learned Photoshop, and then I used my art school training in oil painting in interpreting how to use Photoshop. So essentially, when you hear all these things about oil painters doing a base layer of like, say, a brown or something like that, or burnt sienna, and then building the figures out of it with the shadow, they do it like the shadows, and then they build up the lights on top of that, then they do more detailed shadows and more detailed highlights. That's literally how I handle Photoshop. So it's literally hand, it's, so it's basically you're painting those layers, and that's how you're building it up. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like, and that's, there's a little bit of a kind of a, um, a kind of a, Oil paint type technique here. Well, again, let me blow this up. So the light and layers you're uh, oh, uh, light. Oh no, the light and layers. Um, like, uh, let me blow this up really big. That's as big as it goes. Okay. Like, uh, for instance, um, these white highlights. Uh, like I said, I don't like mixing different colors in the same area. So this whole, f all the flesh tones of the two sisters, are each one designated area in the. F um, in the flats. So when I hit the magic wand, I can just select that. Uh, there's a separate layer for the white highlights and then for the kind of the pinkish highlights of the flesh tone. And that way I can adjust each one individually or paint them in individually without messing with each other. And then I just put one lighting layer, then another lighting layer on top of that, and then 
two or three line layers. Uh, the sh this area here is probably the base color I used. And then also I built the shadows on top of that too in different layers of one of a medium shadow, which is probably like the underlip here or this cheek here. And then the really dark area like uh, right where the hair is completely cutting off light. And that's how I do it. So usually uh, dark layers a little bit lower than uh, a, a lightened layer and then maybe another darkened layer on top of that then some more lightened layers. And it just, it works almost exactly like oil painting for me. And that's the, the easiest way for me to do it as long as they have someone else to flat. Um, I'll say that because I did not train, uh, because I was working in comic books where they expect there to be an ink layer or an in original ink art, um, I kind of you mixed uh, the comic book technique of doing a line drawing and then coloring it in afterwards. So I never got used to the idea of just pure digital painting, which is how most people, if you, and don't do my example if you can do it otherwise. Um, if you can just go straight to digital and just paint instead of doing an ink drawing, and that's how you're comfortable doing it, you can do it quickly. God bless, I, that is a better way to go. Don't overcomplicate things the way I did just because I'm following, I, I was building on traditions. Did you lighting reference too? Uh, I, have some, I have some lighting reference uh, for the uh, main characters. Uh, they're both based on the same uh, friend's daughter. Um, but the thing is, I've actually, I've been doing enough art for long enough that I can kind of just make up a lighting situation. If you guys want me later to, I can just break out some markers and just show you how I think about light and stuff like that. Uh, that really helps comic books. Um, if you're going to do, let's say you're going to do your own graphic novel, it's going to be 90 pages and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, you, you don't, if you can help it, you don't want to have to shoot photo reference for everything because you may come up with a better idea later after you've done your photo shoot. So uh, it helps to have that. Uh, it also helps to have uh, use photo reference of people who you can get uh, on a regular basis, so it helps with their friends. But you know, if you find the perfect person and they got a look where you can't make it up without them, you know, do what you have to do. Totally another question. What, how high of a resolution is your final art page? Uh, I have, uh, like, okay, so I mentioned earlier that I have had in my books translate into languages like French, Polish, Chinese, Japanese, and stuff like that. Uh, that's usually for uh, DC and Marvel books. Uh, There's also the book I, where I showed the sample of where my friends were modeling, Top Ten. Uh, that's been very popular internationally. Uh, so I have hopes that this will be translated into, uh, say, like uh, French. And the French album size is uh, a little bigger than an American comic book, just a little bit, like 12 inches tall, 13 inches tall, something like that. Um, so I did this at 1,000 DPI for American-sized comic books. So that way, if you print it at a French size if you really wanted to, it'll still look good. Um, this isn't a huge worry for most people. Uh, and also, I have, frankly, if they do publish in this French, there's also pretty good odds they'll just print it at an American size or even like manga size. But just in case. Yeah, uh, my computer also, um, I maxed out my computer on RAM, so I have like 48 gigabytes of RAM. So it does not kill my computer if I do 1,000 DPI. Uh, if you do 300 DPI, that's usually fine. For a standard American size. Comment. Yeah, 600 is better. Uh, in fact, that's kind of the standard now, but 300 it works okay. Okay. Well, my own. <laughs> uh, but beyond that, um, 
Uh, for an uh, I like clean, well-designed characters uh, without too much fussy detail, which is why I've never wanted to draw Spider-Man especially, because uh, I hate drawing the webbing on his costume. Uh, it feels very fussy to me. Uh, I like doing just very clean costumes um, uh, with an elegant balance of design. So there's certain versions of like the Wonder Woman costume I like drawing. I like drawing Captain America. I like drawing uh, Superman. Um, let me see. Uh, but also just interesting faces are fun for me. So sometimes, for a while there, I was, my writers were having trouble keeping me from drawing two bizarre faces on side characters because I just like drawing it. Um, another thing with comic books is uh, a lot of people who, I don't know if this is as much of a problem with the current generation, but when I was in art school, the comic book people uh, tended to have like one female face and one male face that they really knew how to draw well. And then if you had to have them draw somebody who didn't look quite like that, like a child or somebody of a different race or something like that, it'd be like, and then here's my person with a, it, I mean, it looked like somebody wearing stage makeup. It's, it was not good. Um, I mean, the bigger variety of people you know how to draw and how to make them look beautiful, uh, it's, I mean, there's no way that's not helpful in every type of realistic art or representational art. In fact, you're getting into a lot of trouble and just, uh, just lock yourself into a lock yourself out of a lot of interesting projects if you can't do that. I mean, if your kids look, you've seen like the pre-medieval, uh, pre-Renaissance uh, pre, uh, art where uh, they draw the little babies looking as like perfect little middle-aged adults. <laughs> uh, and partially, apparently, this is the ideal that, um, yeah, this, the, this baby is so perfect, he looks like an adult already, which is an ideal of the Renaissance, the idea of a child who could actually debate you in philosophy or something like that, so therefore he looks like an adult. Um, but also, it's just dumb looking. So uh, yeah, I mean, if you can draw kids looking like kids, and uh, if you can draw uh, someone who looks Native American who doesn't look like a 1950s white guy extra inside of a cowboy movie, um, this is all good. <laughs> yeah, uh, let me see. So, uh, more questions? Yes, please. Oh, and then you next. Okay, but you first. Who's your biggest inspiration when it comes to your art? Uh, it's changed over the years. Um, I started off being very influenced by a guy named, uh, like John Byrne was a huge influence. He's kind of dropped out and become a huge angry crank. Uh, and his art is almost, when I was talking about things like I don't want the comic book characters to be the same, his art has mostly stayed the same since then. So I admire the people who have taken their art and their writing and everything and just progressed over time. Not necessarily make, trying to improve or go in an obvious improvement path, but just different, creative. Um, uh, I'm a big fan, I was a huge influence, was also Matt Wagner who did a book called Mage. He's also done a lot of stuff for uh, like Batman books and stuff like that lately. Uh, my biggest current inspiration right now of a guy who's so much better than me and so creative and so experimental right now is uh, Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, he did uh, Electro Assassin. Uh, let me see. Uh, I'm trying to think of like uh, other th books he's done. Um, anyway, he's done a huge amount of amazing books. And if you look at his, if you go online and look up, uh, if you spell it as Sync E V I T C H, which is how he does his Twitter name, because it's a Polish name and nobody knows how to spell it unless they really, really follow his work. Uh, yeah, and look at his artwork. He can whip out something with. Uh, like literally uh, a whiteout pen for corrections and a ballpoint pen in like 30 seconds that looks better than something I do in five minutes. And people look at my stuff and say, how did you do that in five minutes? I'm like, I'm not Bill Sienkiewicz, I can't do it in 30. 
Uh, let me see. Um, oh, man. Also, uh, another big inspiration lately was uh, Noel Stevenson of Mimona. Uh, let me see. Um, and just sh the fact that she took what was a very silly uh, webcomic concept of just like uh, mad scientist working in his lab and then a, um, a slightly pudgy teenage girl comes to his door and says, I'm your new assistant. And he says, no, you're not. I didn't ask for one. And then just he kept on pushing this until it was like she, I mean, she kept on pushing it until it was like this brilliant, uh, epic story. Uh, they, you can find it in any good bookstore or uh, most good comic shops or a lot of good libraries. If you can find Nimona, N-I-M-O-N-A, M-O-N-A, this is a, a huge inspiration to me. Uh, anyway, I can keep on going on about people I like. Um, oh, also, you had a question. Oh, uh, actually, okay. Um, what the thing I do is just like so many artists, I mean, almost every artist who's been like, um, I have a kind of a standard head I learned when I was a little kid of just like, here's the ideal male head, here's the ideal female head. And as I went along, I kept on looking for, okay, so I'm trying to do a likeness of a real person. How does this person not look like that model? And then I draw the, I, I try to go for the differences and try to figure out why is this person still beautiful? Uh, and I, one of the reasons why people are amazed I'm good at likeness is also I'm able to draw how the person looks good and then people will be like, often people who have a very, very low self-image of what they look like will be kind of like, that doesn't look like me. And their friends are like, no, that really looks like you. And it's like they're focusing on what's wrong with their face and they're not seeing what's right with the face. Um, that's the thing also, of, uh, try to figure out what's right with the face and why it's interesting, you know. Um, a lot of people can't, uh, if, they, if their standard head, ideal head in their, head, in their imagination is like a very, very, uh, you know, uh, Greek statue type white guy head, and they, they have trouble drawing women, except as kind of a cartoon thing because they, their 3D model in their head is, oh, is a Greek statue type looking guy, or a video game white, white guy. And then the women are just kind of, they can't rotate a woman's head because it doesn't have the same geometry. They can't even do that. And then if you have, they were going to draw like, uh, like a handsome black guy with a thick neck and a wide nose, and they're trying to make it look attractive, and they don't know how to do it. Because it's like, I only have that one nose, and, I, and this is how you end up with people who always draw black people with little tiny button noses, because it's all they know. And they don't know how to draw anything else attractively. This is going to trap you, and this is going to just, People are going to dismiss you as an artist because you're not, you lack the skills. You just literally lack the skills. So yeah, just practice and try to figure out why something is beautiful and why it works. Do you get a lot of your inspiration by just looking at people, just looking around, seeing what people look like? And oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I am. <laughs> yeah, there's a little part of my head where I'll like linger on people's faces when I'm looking at you in the crowd, and it's like, oh, I really like. Your cheek nose, <laughs> I like, it. oh, the way you smile is a little bit different. Uh, your, uh, the woman in the black jacket there has a smile that's a little bit of a crescent moon smile. You have a smile like this, and I'm just going to show you, oh, I forgot this was here. There's a marker on the table, too. Oh, okay, I've got, yeah, I've got, got it. Okay. yeah, oh, uh, here, let me see. Yeah, I mean. 
So uh, there's a woman back there who has a smile kind of like this. And there's another guy who has a smile that's, there's a guy back there who has a smile like, that's like this. And they both look like smiles, but the most important thing in making something look like a smile is not the, uh, is not this shape. It's literally this. Yeah, your, the corners of your mouth will dimple up when you're smiling in a way it doesn't do in any other expression. So I can almost do any shape here I'd like, and it still looks like a smile. In fact, I can go like this, and I can do a frowny thing, and it still kind of looks like a smile. And this is why I can do something like, uh, say if I'm doing a head where someone's looking up, And if I draw those dimples in, I can go like this. It's the corners of the mouth that are most important in making a smile. It's still a smile. So as long as you get those dimples in, that's a smile. That's, it's getting beyond uh, cartoony. If you want to do anything that's approaching realistic art, uh, learning how to do facial expressions that aren't cartoony is really useful. Uh, I mean, you may have heard like the famous example of uh, Bernini from uh, Renaissance art, who would just spend, it was, he lived during the time when mirrors were finally becoming really nice. And before mirrors were, it, looking at a mirror was essentially like looking at the side of a stainless steel oven or you know, something like that. The mirrors were horrible. And then he lived in this age where finally they had nice mirrors with silver and a relatively clear glass and stuff like that. And he would just study his face in mirrors and then do statues of himself making the craziest facial expressions. And it was facial expressions no, no one had ever represented in art before. And just, yeah, studying facial expressions. And then looking at other people and how their facial expressions are different than the ones you draw. And looking for things that break your own rules is really useful in drawing people. And just try to look for like, I have a little rule in my head that, uh, you know, I mean, when I, when I started drawing, I was essentially drawing from 1970s comic book art. So, you know, there is, noses were essentially just that kind of 40s version of a classical, you know, a classical profile um, interpreted in the 70s. And then being able to draw a different nose and then making it look attractive. And just figuring out different geometries was useful. Uh, and just, yeah, and why is that person still cute? Why is that person interesting? Why is it, when that person's happy, why do they look like their smile looks different than the one you're drawing? It's just a useful thing to look for in life. And it just gives you a huge variety. Yeah, oh, let's see, I think somewhere. Yeah, oh, uh, is it, oh, please go ahead. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, and the thing is, again, I mean, don't just draw, and a, a lot of people uh, will just track down what they already know and then try to reinforce it. So, uh, you know, I'm gonna try to find a model who looks like my ideal and then just study it, study it, study it. Uh, I don't know if this is a thing now, but there's a guy inside my, there's a few guys in my art school class who just really loved studying uh, Playboy magazine and then doing photorealistic uh, pencil drawings from it. And they got really good at it, but it's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of all you're getting. Oh, who had, who had the question about the facial expression smiles? Or somebody asked about facial expressions. Was it you? I asked about, do you get your inspiration? Oh, yeah, okay, here. So, else I'm going to try to. Oh, also, can you pass me the Nike bag? Yes. Yeah, I've got bigger, fatter markers in there, which are easier to see from a distance. Yeah, uh, yeah, so. Um, 
and the other thing is um, just, I get, it's not so much necessarily, I mean, drawing from life is good because you get into unusual situations. But even if you can't necessarily do that, just look for drawing situations that don't look like what you're doing. Um, some people will just draw, um, say, like uh, Mongard all the time. And they get really good at drawing these idealized uh, manga faces that look exactly like a, like a 10-year-old, 20-year-old's uh, body um, from a few different poses. And then they don't, they don't, I mean, lit, this is such a problem so that you actually have professional manga artists who don't know how to draw old people. So you'll have these people drawing things like a, you know, kind of a standard manga face. And then when they have to draw an old person, they'll literally just go like this. And it's kind of like, there's, it's not, it's not even the wrinkles. It's like there's different things that change with the face and the shape over time. But they'll literally draw that whole thing and they'll just have that, the same heart-shaped face that comes to the little point and all that. But they'll literally just add lines to it as if you, it li again, it looks like stage makeup. Like you just took a, it's, it's the, the, it's the eight-year-old on the school play playing the grandfather. So they took some black eyeliner or whatever it is and just <laughs> drew the lines on their face. And it's kind of like, that's not, that's not how that works. There's geometry differences that make it more interesting. Uh, oh man, um, yeah, I mean, actually I have a problem with some of that too, but the thing is, if you do go deep enough into manga, I'm not a huge manga reader, yeah. but if you go deep enough into it, yeah, there are some definite exceptions to that of people who are really, really being creative or pushing things, or people who are taking on that whole, uh, the tropes of it, and then pushing it in different, uh, push, pushing in different directions. Hold on, is this interconnected? Here's Chrome. I'm assuming it's on Wi-Fi or something. Oh, yeah, that's even better. I was, uh, I recently, my wife and I took a trip to Madison, Wisconsin, just for a quick vacation trip for the weekend off. Uh, I think I'm going to remember this na artist's name. And there was a, the local modern art museum had a, I'm hoping I'm getting this name right. Yeah, that seems to be it. Yeah, uh, and then we saw this artwork by um, a 30-something artist who just, did the most disturbing artwork <laughs> of just these kind of, uh, there's no problem with like, uh, she was like taking fairy tale stuff and then just making it horrible. And like, uh, here's a picture of the artist and her kidnapping victim or something or bondage, you know. <laughs> and it was just like, and, but this is taking a lot of the tropes and styles from manga. And if you look at especially at her earlier work, it's much more obvious. But she just takes a lot of those concepts and then just pushes it in a, a direction that makes it very disturbing. And then she made like puppets and puppet scenes of people like uh, like a couple bleeding to death. And it's like, wow, this is it's very pretty and also it's really disturbing. And uh, if you, <laughs> well, I mean, this is a whole art school class. All of them need therapy. Oh. That's why they're there. Anyway, I did not talk about you behind your back. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you can take, the thing is, if you take these things that people take as harmless and then push it in a direction where it's exploring something very personal and scary and stuff like that, uh, it can open up a little vulnerable area where people aren't ready for it. And if this person, uh, if Claire Stigliani had just done this stuff in a completely realistic style, uh, it probably would have had almost no impact on me. But, then, but seeing it, this style handling that type of stuff is like, <laughs> I was really, really, when I first saw like the image for, her, images of her stuff from a distance, like, I am not going to like this. But it's free and I'm bored, so I'm going to go in. It's like, <laughs> wow, okay, this is really memorable. So yeah, I mean, uh, actually, uh, that stuff was not for sale because it was at a museum. But my wife and I are hoping to go up to her gallery in Milwaukee uh, and actually buy some of her drawings if we can. Uh, I have no idea what the prices are, though. I might not be able to afford it. But um, yeah, but that stuff from like two, three years ago, the most recent stuff is in the museum exhibit. So I don't know if I can even buy any of the stuff that's really disturbing and interesting. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, m my wife and I both really enjoyed that. So yeah, I mean, there's manga, the manga style itself is not the limit. It's what you do with it and also what you know how to do with it. I'm pretty sure she would be able to draw an old person in her style or just anything she wanted in her style and it would still be really interesting. Uh, currently, she's just doing very, very traditional European fairy tales interpreted, mixed with her own life. So, so there's like another, uh, there's like the one of her, there's a several images of her in her actual studio apparently, you know, and just with disturbing stuff happening. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, uh, any more questions? Please. Um, how do you work with Copic markers? I've tried using some Copic, my friend's Copic markers and trying to get everything to be like one flat color because sometimes it'll overlap. Oh, uh, my trick with uh, Copic, uh, okay, if you work fast, you can get something that's kind of flat, but I don't, that's not my ideal. Usually I'm trying to do something that's kind of tending a little bit towards realism as far as rendering goes. And then I try to go for a gradation. So I start off light. And um, well, let me just show you something in my artwork really quickly. I used to try to go for a very, I had an ideal when I first got out of art school that I was going to try to make my coloring perfect or my paintings perfect and just make the, everything, uh, the gradations as smooth as possible. Come on. There we go. Do not play. Pause. OK. And if you look closely at this here, you'll see there's this little texture in the background here. In here, if you took the texture out, it does not look as good. Uh, I mean, it looks perfect, but that's a problem. And all the figures go from looking kind of flesh-like to looking like uh, plastic dolls in a plastic environment. Um, if you've ever watched, like, especially uh, a digital animation with the sound off, even like a really good uh, like uh, Pixar movie or something like that, especially early Pixar movies, if you turn the sound off and just watch like 10 seconds of the animation. It looks really creepy uh, because you can tell everything just looks like plastic. The grass looks like plastic, tree bark looks like plastic, room, walls, everything. Uh, and flesh, it just looks like animated dolls. Uh, that little bit of texture uh, really, really helps give th life to things. And that's, that's the strength of Copic, that's not the weakness. So if you're trying to make it perfectly smooth, you're fighting its medium in a way that it's not, it doesn't, that's, you're working against its strengths. So just, Love that texture. And just, um, it's also the same reason why, like, when I was talking about how, like, digital lettering looks dead and looks like I'm sending you an email. 
and handlering looks like Xander Cannon is writing a note personally to you because he is. Again, the fact that Copic lets you see the strokes uh, is what makes it good. Because if it looks perfect, then it looks like, oh, uh, you know, it looks like there's a perfect sheet of digital color dropped onto this from an MS, you know, Microsoft Paint or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, if it's got that little bit of hand feel to it, uh, it makes it feel personal. There's also another thing, which is um, it's a broader uh, principle of art, which is that um, if art can only be interpreted one way, um, it's really boring. It's always really boring. So uh, I think, is it Ellsworth Kelly? You know, the guy who does the flat color, perfectly spray-painted on glossy car finish paintings of like a giant red square or a giant green square? Or, you know, he'll get experimental and then he'll do a shape like this. And they're like, you know, 10 feet tall, 8 feet wide, and it's just this giant thing in a museum where it's like, and when I was in first in art school, I was like, oh, that's amazing, somebody did that, and just pushed abstract art to the level where it's just a big geometric shape. And then I, you know, I got to be 23 years old and 30 years old, and I am now 47. And when I go to these now, it's like, yeah, he, there's nothing else to see inside that piece of artwork. It's only a giant geometric shape perfectly painted like a, a Ferrari. It's, it's really boring. There's, he is not an interesting artist at all. If the thing that makes art interesting is when you can interpret it in two ways. Um, so when you see something like, uh, I mean, literally, if you, can, if you see a portrait of the Virgin Mary done in elephant dung, uh, something that was controversial a long time ago, the fact that it can be interpreted in two ways it is what makes it interesting. If you can take something that um, is a smear of, you know, a smear of purple and red paint, that looked in one way, you can see the individual smears. You just look at it closely, and then you get a little bit back, and it looks almost photogra like a black and white photograph with a little bit of tinting. That's interesting, because you give those two views, and you can see the two, there's two ways to interpret it. And if you can have five ways to interpret it, because it's uh, conceptual, or because it has some type of weird thematic thing like that, the, the more layers of meaning and ambiguity you can put into an artwork, the better. Um, a stop sign is boring. A stops, you know, but if you do something, you know, anything clear and graphic and just perfectly pristine, it can be nice, but it's one thing. But you know, when you start adding the different layers, different ways of interpreting it, through every different part of your brain, not just uh, visual and conceptual and all that, but all these different ways of doing it, storytelling, whatever. Uh, the clear Stigliani artwork again. Uh, hold on a second. I mean, part of what made this interesting for me also is that it's not perfectly clean, it's not perfectly clean anime work. I mean, you can see like a sh just weird things she did, like a little bit of collage work and then layering it, and you can see that, you know, just everything that makes it messy is also what makes it interesting. If you imagine this as a perfectly done um, video game manga style thing, you know, like a Japanese uh, RPG game or something like that, it wouldn't have had any impact on me. But also the fact that you can see the paint smears and how she constructed it makes it interesting. Showing your construction makes artwork more interesting. And showing all these different little layers and the fact that it's kind of biographical and it's kind of storytelling and it's also twisted and you're kind of wondering what is wrong with her head and is she crazy or is she actually trying to send a message? These questions make it more interesting. Um, another thing, principle of art is that um, Art is interesting when it adds a new tool in your head for interpreting the world. And the fact that this then made me look at um, artists and uh, traditional fairy tales a little bit differently 
uh, and manga art a little bit differently. Also, it added tools to my head in interpreting the world, and that's really useful. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I just I don't know how far I've drifted really far from your original question. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, everything you can do that, everything you can do that take your imperfections and turn them into a tool of your art is good. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's you. you the fact that you're seeing this, it's a, bit, it's a bit like the thing of like, that doesn't look like me and your friend saying it does. Um, being able to take these things that you think are imperfect in your art that other people think are interesting is a path that's really worth following. And if people say that's interesting, you think, oh, they're crazy. No, find out why. Find out why that's interesting to them. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, uh, questions? Uh, does anyone, okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, I'm going to give a, a good situation and a bad situation. Okay. Uh, so I once got to work with um, a famous science fiction prose writer named Harlan Ellison, who'd never written a comic book script before. So he did things like, uh, and uh, you've drawn comic books. Uh, usually comic books will have anywhere from one to, and they say four to six panels on a page, maybe nine, and if you're really stretching it, 10 or 12. He had like a 16 panel pages. And then, because uh, he'd never written before, he didn't know how many you could fit in. And then being able to interpret this and discuss with him how I was going to do the storytelling, and then sometimes literally putting in 16 panels in an unusual arrangement where, like, for one, I had a block where it started off big panels that got smaller, 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 and into a spiral of little smaller panels so I could fit in everything he wanted. Because he was just trying to show time was passing. He was just like, and then we need like eight panels of time passing. And I was like, how do I do this with it? And he's like, perfect. <laughs> so sometimes it's a challenge that's good. And getting these people who have crazy ideas and then trying to say, that's dumb, but maybe I can make it work. I mean, be imperfect and making it interesting. Uh, that's useful. On the other hand, uh, a different situation is early on in my career, I worked with, um, in comic books, in superhero comic books, there's two styles of doing scripts. Uh, there's the, uh, what's called uh, the standard or full script or DC script, which is uh, like what you saw, which is description of all the action in every panel, the, all the dialogue in every panel. Uh, and then you just have a, f it just kind of forms a blueprint for everything you're going to be doing. And you can reinterpret it if you want to, if you want to change the number of panels or something, but you follow that, you basically follow the blueprint and maybe make some little changes here and there. The other style is called Marvel style, which is uh, based on early Marvel comics uh, from the 1960s, where Stan Lee was writing like f seven books or something like that with some of the top artists in the industry at the time. And he knew that they knew storytelling better than he did. So you just say, on this page, we need to have a big fight scene, and we need to make sure that Dr. Doom wins and is standing over them. So Jack Kirby would then draw a fight scene of uh, you know, all these interesting things happening, and then Dr. Doom whips out this device at the last minute, and the ground blows up, and the Fantastic Four is lying under rubble, and Dr. Doom is laughing above them. Um, that's a Marvel-style script. When I worked on one of those early on in my, in my career, uh, and then I saw the dialogue on the story afterwards, because Marvel-style scripts have no dialogue usually, it was such bad dialogue. I was just horrified. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that kind of took a lesson of who I, follow the writers you want to work with if you're going to do that, if you, if you can. Uh, when you're first breaking in, you're probably not going to have any choice in it, but if you get to a point where you can choose your writers, including yourself, uh, yeah, yeah, it's so worth it. Have trouble with that yourself because you're kind of working Marvel style, just being you write it yourself. And then uh, you find the pictures. 
before I do, uh, I, I, get, I get the basis of the dialogue, and it's kind of Marvel style, but before I get to the finished art, I definitely make sure that I have the dialogue nailed down. Um, and part of it is that it's an important thing for me is getting the emotional beats down. And uh, I like having, frankly, my favorite thing to doing inside of a comic book is having two people in conversation who have completely different views of the world and don't understand each other. And the, they're, they're both trying to shove the conversation into a different direction, and they don't understand what the other person is even talking about. Uh, which is why I like drawing these two sisters, because they have such a different view of the world. They're always talking about different things. They're never quite talking about the same thing. Um, and unless I know what the dialogue is, I can't draw when they're happy, and then often when they're confused, in what way they're confused. Uh, and yeah, and you all, I'm assuming you all know your parents, and you've had these conversations with them where it's kind of like, Mom, Dad, I'm explaining something. They're like, no, but we're talking about this. And it's like, you realize that doesn't even exist in my life? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I like drawing those conversations. And unless I know where the beats are, I can't make it work. But do you like, at least write an outline of the story before uh, you start The outline is such so simple. It's simply, I mean, it's, it's like a micro version of what I was talking about the Stanley scripts of uh, there's a good place to have, uh, you know, this argument. This is a good place for to have them reach the castle. This is a good page to have them. Uh, escape, fight, 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 you know, that type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so bare bones. It's like four words at most. Yeah. If I'm writing for somebody else, I'll do a full script. Uh, and I, it'll be completely formatted like the one I showed. Uh, for myself, there's no point. There's no point in describing to myself, and there's a, they're in a forest, and blah, blah, blah. And at the rough stage I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be doing that, but I don't want to have to type it first. Because right. I can just literally go straight to what I'm thinking about. Right. Yeah. So that's the important thing. And then I need to make it sure, it's easiest for me to make sure the conversation beats work best if I do it in the context of the panels and showing where the page breaks are. Oh, and another trick with comic books is um, in prose, nobody worries about um, where the page breaks are. Uh, in comics, this is one of the most important things, when you turn the page. Because it's, it's nice to have a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end of a page, and then you turn the page, and then revelation. You go through the page, and you see, when you open a comic book, you see all the action on the two pages, and you can kind of, at a subconscious level, just interpret everything. You open up a prose book, this is not a problem. You're not going to, you can have a surprise anywhere on the, these two pages, and nobody's going to care. It's not going to be spoiled, usually, unless it's like, you do something weird with the, the text or something. But that's not the rule. Comic books, you need to know where it is. And you can't have a revelation at the wrong point where you set up like mystery at the beginning of the, uh, the first of the page of the double page spread. And then you have the revelation here. And it's kind of like, OK, I can already see what you're going to be doing. This is not a surprise now. You, know, you can't ruin your own You can ruin your own surprises that way. So yeah, uh, it really helps with that. Go ahead. Oh, uh, some. Uh, let me see. I mean, for one thing, it's actually a lot of people who were in both uh, novels and inside of comic books, they were afraid that um, digital sales would cannibalize uh, print sales. I don't know how this has affected uh, prose and novels and nonfiction, but in comic books, it's all been additive. In fact, it seems to be that people will get addicted to a book digitally and then go into a comic shop, and it's increased sales there. 
So this was actually the best sales year in comics we can, as, we, as far as we can tell in 20 years. And there have been a few crashes before then that we hadn't recovered from until now. Partially that, but also, I mean, the other thing is when I mentioned that there are these people who do non-superhero books uh, who don't show up on the, uh, what are called the diamond charts, which are what's used in local, local comic shops. They're not significant there. But a lot of superhero, uh, people in the superhero comic book business dismiss these people and don't understand, no, these people are way more popular than us. They're actually, you know, Raina Telgemeier, you guys probably know this, Raina Telgemeier is a huge star. Uh, but you, if you go to like a 40-year-old comic book artist and often, or even writers oftentimes who don't have kids, they'll be like, so who's this Raina Telgemeier? Telg they can't pronounce your last name. And they'll just be completely confused about it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if you add it all up, yeah, this is definitely the best year for com American comics ever. Uh, and by contrast, I'll also note that um, the European and the Japanese comic book industries are still shrinking massively. Yeah, they're doing horrible. Uh, partially in Japan, it's a demographic problem where there are not a lot of young people in Japan. So you're not making, you're not making comic books for 40-year-olds and then trying to market them around the world to 12-year-olds. And the tastes don't line up where 12-year-olds and especially the parents of 12-year-olds in other countries do not want to read tales of uh, 1920s samurai girls in short skirts with their panties always flipping up. Uh, fighting across uh, the Jap Imperial Japanese Tokyo and just like posing suggestively with samurai swords near their crotches. Um, this is not what 12 year olds especially, a, most, you know, a universal 12 year old market especially needs. Uh, in Jap uh, France, the problem is that it's, uh, they're unwilling to take risks. So uh, the latest Asterix book or some other popular series like that, still very successful and huge. Yes. Yeah, the publishers. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a bit like the French, French, say, like the tech industry or something like that, where it's like, we do not want to give money to 20-year-olds. We do not want to give money to 30-year-olds. Why would we trust these people? And it's kind of like, because that's where you get new ideas. We don't trust them. Um, so do you think the expansion in the American market is in superhero books, or is it in the alternative books, or is it both? International. Last question. Okay. Uh, let me see. Internationally, um, the growth of uh, popular uh, co American comic books is mostly in superhero books. So uh, they'll be flying out people like uh, whoever's working on the latest Captain America book. Um, a lot of reprints get done there now because of the superhero movies. Uh, and some of the American, like, uh, like Raina Telgemeier or uh, Noel Stevenson, are getting popular internationally more so, but they don't have movies yet. But I, I suspect a lot of these people are going to get franchise, you know, multimedia franchise eventually, and then get more popular. Uh, let me see what else is there. Oh, uh, also digital. Um, let me also mention that. Um, let me see. Another nice. I should get back to that question really quickly. Just um, it also is changing storytelling a bit in that uh, it's sometimes hard to read uh, a superhero comic book on a digital device because we designed for a double-page spread. So if we do like panels that go all the way across the top on one page and all the way across on the other. It's hard to read on, a, on an iPad. Uh, so if you look at my books, I never do that. I never bleed from one page to the next in the storytelling. Uh, while people who do web comics originally tended to work really well digitally because they've always designed for a screen. And if they go to print, they just have to figure out if it's going to be a landscape or portrait format. 
Anyway, I need to go now and let the next person to talk. Okay.